it, there's never been really much of an employee situation. It's always me and significant other, other or whatever you call it, and friends. Because we ne- have never had funding or a budget. Yeah. Well, you know, certainly in the 90s, I remember seeing the, the books everywhere. I mean, that must have been the height for circulation for you. That was the height of circulation for me was 91 to 94, I think. Yeah. That's be- that's before the internet clobbered us, the entire print media industry. And, um, but up till then, it was great. There wasn't any internet, and my bestseller, Modern Primitives, got taken on the first Lollapalooza tour that hit the Midwest and all that, and and that became my instant bestseller of all time. So is it just a case of the culture kind of coming around to you in a way? There's a lot of different cultures, as we know, existing contiguously, and it's all on the internet, but I started out making my mark by doing the very first publication on Search and Destroy in the San Francisco. And then that sort of became an international movement, or it started out as an international movement, and then he started meeting people all over the world, and that was addicting. And then I just... The first wave of punk literally ended in late 78 for San Francisco. Mm -hmm. There were three waves of punk. First one was New York, 73 to 75. Uh, second wave was London, around 74 to 76. And then our wave didn't really start till 77 and lasted almost two years. Yeah. And then suddenly everyone disappeared. And, be, well, we got invaded by teenagers who were violent. I always say that, you know, if I were a conservative think tank wanting to kill punk rock, I'd introduce, obviously, violence and drugs. It works every time. Are you talking about the hardcore scene? Well, it's been called that. Yeah. I don't like want to put down any individuals because there's certain hardcore songs I really like. Yeah. As a social phenomenon, I... I I didn't like the fact that there were suddenly no beautiful women at the punk venue. There was only one punk venue in town. It was like a block away. When I'm probing out the history of the company, it's so closely intertwined with punk for you. Oh, yeah. Well, it was punk was still the most practical iteration of an underground. You know, you reduce everything to principles, or at least someone like me do. And every art movement that has ever been has had DIY, because... People don't like what you're doing, and so you have to do it yourself, and you have to forge a small little underground around yourself of just humans. So DIY is obviously a principle, but I suppose every underground that's ever been has been against the status quo, and maybe what you call anti-authority, anti-authoritarian, I hope. So those are the eternal principles of punk. To me, besides a bunch of other little words like anti-consumerism, anti-conformism, you know, anti-complacency. <laughs> was it a case of you seeing this kind of music, this this scene emerge and wanting to do your own version of it? I came of age in the in the hippie movement, yeah. but the real hippie movement was way before Summer of Love '67. It was when it was anonymous. In '66 was when I happened to come into it the summer of 66 and i joined this band blue cheer i saw an ad on practically illiterate scrawled ad on on a little bulletin board by the door of what they called the psychedelic shop on hay street which was the archetypal hippie business model and uh, you know playing all these records from the asia you know the east 
ragas and stuff like that we'd never really heard and and then offering all these books of wisdom of the east and there were just a few books and drugs like you know the psychedelic experience book which is kind of a bible for some people not me because i'm anti-drug but i don't want to be quoted saying i'm anti-drug because uh, i've taken penicillin (laughs) (laughs) recreational drugs to me nothing's more important than having an absolutely clear mind all the time and anything that clouds it, I'm, I tend to look upon it, at least for myself. I don't care what anyone else in the world does, but for myself, I, I want to have a clear mind as much as possible. It's hard, though, especially when you're talking about the hippie scene, the psychedelic scene, to, to the art and the music that was made from that drug use. I don't think the drug use did it. I really don't. I mean, a lot of times in our rehearsals, it, I wouldn't say it was overly drug used saturated i mean there's economics all the things like pot and alcohol they they all cost money and if you're in both the hippie and the punk underground money is what you don't have i remember walking because i didn't have 15 cents for the bus you know like a mile to go to the blue cheer rehearsal i mean when you don't have any money because you're not working i guarantee you that you don't really have a lot of it for alcohol and and pot and all that stuff i sort of have in recent years begun to kind of romanticize that point of my life i never thought i would but when i first moved to new york city really living in some of the worst shitholes <laughs> places without without uh plumbing i mean just miserable places not having any money but you do get to a certain point in your life where you in, in a strange kind of way you start to miss it well the only thing you ought to miss legitimately is all that wonderful free time you used to have because when you start making money you definitely have less of that did you move out here to pursue music no of course not i just you know it's a typical story growing up in a small town where of literally 1200 people in the southern california desert well i was only there from age 7 to 17 or so and then having a beatnik uncle who brought me to san francisco when i I was 14, and it was so gorgeous and beautiful here. He took me to, like, the Black Hawk Jazz Place mm. and the Tenderloin, and, and the Jazz Workshop was here. And it was and North Beach on Friday and Saturday night. It was very romantic then. Yeah. And, of course, you want to move there as soon as you can. But I, sort of conservative, I opted to go to UC Berkeley, which is close to San Francisco. But, yeah. But, you conservative know. Conservative in some ways i mean you know that it was university but berkeley was never particularly conservative politically i don't know the real history i I landed in berkeley at the time of the free speech movement so that was wild (laughs) i mean it's just unheard of i I like the explanation if i was conservative so i went to berkeley in the 60s (laughs) well i don't know i I just got i got a scholarship there and you just kind of go where the money is sure Actually, I have to say I got into Harvard at the same time, but I went to Harvard and I was just scared. I didn't have any allies there or infrastructure. Here I had my beatnik uncle and I could live with him while I tried to make money, you know, for so I could attend Berkeley. Was discovering the counterculture, was that a result of having a beatnik uncle living in San Francisco? Certainly had had something to do with it. He brought me the Life magazine and he brought me Howl, the book. There was a wonderful life magazine on the beatniks he brought it to me you know some of us are really are born anthropologists and outsiders and i think i was that real early because i remember when i was four the someone gave me a medical book and i was just fascinated by the photograph 
of a so-called hermaphrodite. Both sexes or yeah. genders in one human. And so th- things like that. But you're not shocked when you're that young by anything. Sure. And they also gave me a book. Someone gave me a book, something like The World's Weirdest Animals, Platypus, whatever they all were. If those are the earliest books you literally physically own, you start to kind of embark upon all your life what my friend called A Search for Weird. And the Book of Knowledge with graphic drawings of Christians being thrown to the lions. I mean, that was kind of horrifying and fascinating at the same time. When you said you were an outsider, what what do you mean by that? I look Asian, right? But what if you don't have any real Asian culture internally because you're raised in foster homes? A white foster home, a black foster home, one Japanese foster home. And then you get to live with your real mother when you're seven. Well, if this is what you're grown up with in America, plus not a heck of a lot of culture, if you get transferred to all these homes, you probably instantly become an outsider. And to survive, you just smile at everyone. You never felt that you had a group that you belonged to. I'm so lucky that I learned to love reading so yeah. early. I could read at age four. I remember when I lived with the Japanese family, they had kids my age and they're all jealous because I could read better and faster than them. I talked to a lot of artists about this idea of finding your group of weirdos. You know, a lot of people, especially who are from small towns and certainly in, in a pre-internet era of finally going to that place where you meet people who are like you. Suddenly everything sort of starts to click. I've never had that very many friends. I was just lucky at UC Berkeley. I met this one person who had an older brother who was kind of a genius, I guess. And the older brother turned me on to, A, the, the idea that films were art. Take my word for it, people didn't have that idea back then. And he had all these film magazines like Film Culture, Film Quarterly. And I mean, you just don't just automatically find these magazines growing up in a small town. And, and he also turned me on to naive art. And he had a book called The Freeway as an Art Form. You know, all aerial photos of clover leaves. Oh, and he was really into very obscure jazz on Blue Note and Prestige. And so I got to hear all these people that still aren't really famous, like Herbie Nichols, I thought was really great. He's not as famous as Miles Davis. Oh, and I also got into really obscure blues. I guess it, everything's available now, but it wasn't then. Blind Willie Johnson, people like that. Did you find a counterculture that you felt spoke to you, that you felt comfortable with? When I graduated from UC Berkeley, I immediately... Well, actually, I, I then went and did grad school at SF State just one semester. But then the whole hippie thing was starting. I lived at 624 Ashbury, which is right at Hate and Ashbury. I wanted to be at Ground Zero for what whatever this was happening. <laughs> Got men walking around letting their hair grow out. That was weird. I always have felt like an outsider. I know it's a trendy thing for everyone to proclaim themselves yeah. that. But I think in my case, it was probably accurate. And I like to read so much. Other people didn't seem to like to read as much as me. That was my more my social life than like real life. So did you feel like an anthropologist? Yeah. In fact, I wanted to be an anthropologist. I stupidly took English literature instead, but but I was always more interested in anthropology. I mean, real early, New Guinea seemed to be the place to go and study, except 
maybe they're partly cannibals. I mean, in a way, you're able to kind of translate that to San Francisco for being someone who felt like an outsider who perhaps wasn't really spending that much time interacting with people one-on-one, certainly wasn't doing all the drugs that everyone else was doing at the time. That does give you a certain vantage point that you wouldn't have in the middle of things. I suppose you don't you don't really realize it at the time. Yeah. You kind of take everything for granted. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to have fun. I was glad I finally discovered public, that I could be a publisher. That took forever. When you get an English major at UC Berkeley, they never taught you, hey, hey, boys and girls, you can each become a book publisher. Yeah. It just wasn't on the radar. You just thought, and actually it never gave any thought as to what I would do with the darn BA degree from UC Berkeley in English literature. Like, what can you do with that? I Some stupid, really. I never even asked that question. In those early days in the city, I mean, obviously, <laughs> rents weren't what they are now, but... Well, you're talking $15, $20, $25 a month yeah. to rent a room. You know, you still do have to make some income in order to not starve. But what you were, know, you, what yeah. were you doing at that point? Well, I had always been a super fast typist, and so I could get a temp job like it sounds funny, Kelly Girls. I worked for them because I had such a fast typist and they can just instantly get me work and part-time work or whatever work that I can do just go to show up at the job huh, wearing a tie and a suit and then do the job and then get my check and live for a while without having to work were you writing for yourself at that point afraid not that's the one thing I wish I had done was keep a diary all my life I wish my mother had, somebody had I did make have a huge notebook of drawings I made that I'm convinced helped me survive the foster homes, but it disappeared. I don't know what happened to it, but it was pretty violent drawings, I remember. It helped you survive in the sense of just being sort of a oh, That a was my home. No, no, that was my centering device, yeah. this huge red drawing notebook, hardbound, and that was my real life. And all the whatever anger, emotions I felt, I just would commit them to these violent drawings of sword fighters and... <laughs> Cowboys and Indians, <laughs> archetypes like that of warfare. It was catharsis, though. It was, it was a way of getting it on paper. I was happy drawing and doing, making yeah. these drawings, and they were very crude, I'm sure. But from ages ago, I was convinced it was that red notebook that kept me together, as they say, through all these changes. When do you actually start writing for yourself? Not until punk. Long time. Yeah. 77. A, a decade or so between moving oh, to San Francisco. Yeah, because I was stupidly trying to be a musician for all these years. And Why stupid? Because it judged by results. That's one of my <laughs> aphorisms. Did I get famous? No. Did any of my bands succeed? No. Is getting famous, is that a good bar for creative fulfillment? Well, I think you need at least one or two people out there to say, yeah, it sounds great. Keep okay. doing it. I mean, you don't need a hundred, but yeah. you need at least one or two. You know, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> For the duration of that period, you were just kind of playing around with different groups? I started my own groups, and they were all failures. Yeah. That's all I can say. I mean, there's probably a few ancient cassette tapes in this house, and they probably were very poorly recorded. We didn't have wonderful equipment like yeah. you have. I don't know. It's just a delusion that you can start a band. So are, are you able to, in hindsight, sort of look at what you did? and realize why it didn't work? Very rarely do yeah. I look back. I mean, Bob Dylan wrote a book called Don't Look Back or something, yeah. and, and that was, I said, that makes a hell of a lot of sense because your your life 
would then become suffused with regrets and whatever. No, I don't look back. I'm pretty much became future oriented. If we're going to paraphrase Bob Dylan, you know, something is happening, but you don't know what it is. I mean, you knew you wanted to do something creative, but you didn't know what the outlet was ultimately. I think a lot of people have that problem. Yeah. They, 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 everyone, I, I mean, I have all these statements like everyone's a poet, everyone's a painter, everyone's an artist, everyone's a photographer, everyone's a musician. And I think they, everyone is, but it can be difficult to focus and develop something that, that other people validate. I mean, there's like 1 million garage bands that formed that never went anywhere and we don't know who they are. And for all I know, they might've each written one classic song, like you're going to miss me by yeah, 13th floor of Elvis, yeah. But you know, I, I mean, you, music has a very strong hold on you. It's emotional, intellectual, and, and so many people have fantasies of wanting to be a rock star like me. Yeah. I don't think we had the word rock star then, but you just wanted to make music for a living. It's very hard to make that living. Was making music creatively fulfilling for you, even if people weren't giving you the kind of reinforcement you needed? You know, I didn't know what it meant to be a musician. I mean, I could always play by ear. I always had kind of what you call perfect pitch, mm. sort of, which actually means pitch memory. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, the, what, A is 440 for the, 444 for the Philadelphia symphony music but it's 440 for like everyone else the, the philadelphia symphony always tuned a little bit sharp it's relative it's a little relative yeah. i i would judge but um the only point of starting a band or or any music organization is to somehow find someone to collaborate with if you don't have what it takes yourself to write original songs compositions that's what it's all about not playing other people's songs and and you know someone like the beatles they're always held up as a great example and they were they're way more avant-garde than people think i mean with the revolver yeah. and all those noise ex experiments with adding noise and cut-ups burrows cut-ups i mean the beatles were if you really know their history they did a lot. They were tapping the zeitgeist of what everyone was feeling, though. I mean, Burroughs started to become popular among everyone hip, quote-unquote, yeah. around the time of the hippie movement, around 64 or 5. And Naked Lunch was the big thing to read. When you're around a creative type, an artist, an iconic artist like Burroughs, I know you did spend a little bit of time with Later him. in life, yeah. Is that useful in the pursuit of becoming a creative person yourself? Look, everyone is creative. Let's, yeah. let's start sure. with that. And what you, your job is to get inspired by reading or exposing. Reading is most of us, that's all we can do. I mean, we can't actually spend time in the same room with every major creative yeah. person. At least read everything that they ever wrote. And so you, you could do far worse than to read every interview with every famous artist in any medium there's ever been the interviews of francis bacon are interesting for example but but i chose as my compass the surrealism movement because they have produced so much thousands of books you know at least a hundred artists uh, every one of their artworks is worth looking at every interview they ever did is worth reading i mean there's just so much to research <laughs> pun with dada and surrealism alone and and I, of course i read all the other people that 
that were allegedly in the history of art, the futurists, the, like Luigi Russolo's The Art of Noise. I read that a million years ago, and that is still pretty avant-garde. You know, I mean, validating noise in music. I mean, that's still happening. We just went to the San Francisco Electronic Music Festival, and, and I was shocked that this is their 19th year. Like, how come I didn't go to every one of them? I live in the same town. And so so we went to all the shows three nights in a row, and you know, everyone's trying to kind of be avant-garde. And I, and I asked... I said, is this the punk rock of today? Mm. You know, small, very small. Everyone, a lot of people in their attending seem to know each other. And they're kind of nerdy people. A lot of single men that probably never had a girlfriend or whatever you call it, significant other. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the, the festival allowed everyone to just sort of do what they want and get away with it. Yeah. They had women every night, thank goodness. And... Quite interesting, all over the map, guaranteed. And I thought the hardest core guy who just, you know, just volume turned up to 11, hardcore, pure noise with lots of complication things going on within that huge tunnel of noise you were thrust in. I thought it's so funny that, in a way, the hardest core guy is this 85-year-old, 85-pound Japanese bespectacled man who is one of the fluxus people in 62 and he had his own asian avant-garde music he started in 1960 i can't memorize the name of the group i'll have to research it and he came from new york they brought up paid his plane fare anything that can have such a wide spectrum of so-called music including visuals sometimes I mean, I'm in favor of that. Yeah. Let's go back to the Burroughs example. What were your takeaways from spending time with somebody like Burroughs? Oh, that was much later. There was a hell of a lot of prep before I ever... I didn't become a fan of Burroughs from reading Naked Lunch. Mm. I thought, this is awfully weird. You know, these ideas, they're kind of sci-fi. and You're somebody who seems to embrace the weird. Yeah, yeah, but I, I didn't become a fan of Burroughs until... I read two interviews in either 69 or 70, and or there were articles on them. One was in Atlantic Monthly. I think another one was in Evergreen Review. I don't know. There was the one maybe a little later in Paris Review. That's the name of the yeah. magazine. And it was the interviews. That, they were excerpted from the job, which hadn't been published. And so I just like underlined them and tried to get all the books and everything he mentioned. And then when the job came out, for at least a year, that was my Bible. Just trying to literally go to bookstores all the time, used ones, and try and find every book he talked about that I could. He was giving you all these arguments why everyone should study hieroglyphics mm. because your mind will work less linearly. It sounds like a kind of lifelong driving impulse for you is just to find as much information about everything as, as possible. I mean, not everything. No, only. Only the anti-authoritarian okay. stuff and the humor. Going as deep into a subject as possible, you know. Oh yeah, well, well, if you find a a roadmap that that seems worthy. Yeah. And my two roadmaps were surrealism and its predecessor, the Dada movement. But thank goodness, surrealism. There are already many books out in magazines and everything, and so your job is to find every one and read them. And then Burroughs, well, it turned out he'd done a bunch of interviews here and there, you know, newspapers, whatever they were, and so your job is to find every one of them. 
Thank goodness MIT Press uh, under Sylvair Lotringer found er almost every Burroughs interview and put him in that two-inch, three-inch thick volume, you know, that they put out of Burroughs' interviews because the interviews are just so... They give you so much. You had mentioned earlier the internet as sort of kind of a downward slope. For sales, for yeah. e economic. Your production house specifically, but certainly as somebody who is compelled to really go deep into subjects and gather as much information on them as possible, it must be a useful tool for you. No, no, I stay off it because I have so many books I haven't read yet <laughs> I, on paper. And I, I, you know, I had this paranoid theory that it's not good for your eyes in the long term to spend, you know... 12 yeah. hours a day on a flickering screen. Oh, they have improved the screens a little. I would just rather read Light of the Sun, see the sun's yeah. out there pouring through this window, and, and the reflected light bounces into your analog eyes, <laughs> you know, and you read print. I just, I'm not comfortable. Also, I like to mark up my books. I'm not yeah. comfortable on the screen. Sure, I could open up another window and take notes on everything I read. If I read anything in online of more than a few sentences i like to just print it out and study it how much of that do you think is a result of the internet really having come along later in life for you and how much of it is just something more fundamental well it's just that i'm like everyone else i'm super easily distracted yeah that's the biggest enemy of in existence today is distraction yeah it's so hard to concentrate and get something really done. And, and I, I'm like anyone on the Internet. Oh, I don't know what this word means. I'll look it up. I mean, and, oh, I found another word that's mm -hmm. interesting. It just, you know, an hour later, you realize, hey, I'm supposed to start it out reading this one article. From that standpoint, then, it must be difficult to commit yourself to one topic for a long period of time when it comes to, you know, putting a book together. No, I, I just don't have the energy to do what I used to do. I, or I would probably be doing oh there's a bunch of books i guess i i would have i mean someone someone does do the i don't need to do a lot of work other people are doing it <laughs> i i mean i know there's both print and websites devoted to electronic mm. music for example and there's like must be thousands of wannabe electronic musicians out there who are on these websites but i don't have time to to hear all of that I mean, it, that's the trouble with linear media. It takes time. If I meet someone and they come over and then the, and they and they play their stuff in person, I will listen. But it has to be personal. I have an apartment in Queens, New York, and I have a lot of bookcases and I have books piled up everywhere. It's not um, you're outpacing me by quite a bit here. But every time I travel around, you know, most cities there's always a handful of bookstores I need to go to. You know, we're Caddy Corner from City Lights, which is a big one, obviously. Yeah, and yeah. there's a handful of other ones in San Francisco. I always end up leaving every city with with more books, and it gets away from you pretty quickly. It can. Oh, it it can and does. Yeah. And the hardest thing, of course, for me to do is to get rid of a book. Yeah. So let's just leave it at that. Well, it's bittersweet, right? I mean, there's something very exciting in going to a bookstore and finding something new or something that just aligns with what you're interested in at the time. But not to get too morbid about it, but I always end up like looking at all these books on my shelf, all the ones that I haven't read, or going to a bookstore, and it, it kind of reminds me of my own mortality and the fact Good. that... Good. Death is something to contemplate every morning, I suppose. Is that a positive thing? Yeah. It helps you value life more. I mean, death is what gives value to life. Mm. You can de define value in one word, scarcity. I mean, that's how everything in the world 
is ranked according to the world's evaluation systems, and they usually reduce the money. That's interesting. I mean, that perhaps that's one of the reasons why you're not that invested in the internet is the internet sort of, in a sense, gets rid of scarcity when it comes to information, when it comes to availability. Well, it, I mean, on the one hand, you do know that there's 4 billion people on the planet out of 7.5, whatever our population is, that don't have any internet access. That's a lot of people still. 4 billion? Yeah. That don't have internet? Sure. <laughs> I guess I say that from the standpoint of somebody who, growing up, I mean, you know, the, the internet was kind of around, but I did feel like, to some degree, that I, I used to have to work to find a lot of these interesting countercultural things. I, growing up in Fremont, I would I would have to go to, you know, Berkeley, go to San Francisco, to these bookstores, to these record stores to find out about it. And, and because of that, and because I had to take a gamble by spending what little money I had on something on a book, it did take on a certain value that it might not have if you go to Spotify or if you go to Wikipedia and it's all just there in front of you. Oh, I would I would agree. And a lot of what on Wikipedia is actually incorrect, Yeah, oddly enough, or some of it is. I don't know. You only have so much time, and I'm. I like the that Madonna song of "Material Girl." <laughs> I'm a material man. <laughs> I live in three dimensions, and I live in time, and I like handling physical yeah. objects, you know, and reading. Like I said, analog, not digital. I went to the Magritte exhibit at, at Good. MoMA. Good choice. Yesterday, I used to have difficulty going to to art museums. I I, hmm. I didn't understand the value in it of standing close to painting and and taking it in. But one of the things that you do learn at a well produced art exhibit is the importance of context. Oh yeah, I suppose yeah, context. You've got a painting. You've got a little synopsis of where that artist was in their life, and you know, perhaps you're walking through chronologically with Magritte, you know, you're watching him be influenced by Van Gogh. You're watching him be influenced by Picasso in the early stuff and slowly developing his style from there. Nice. And I do think that one of the things that we don't get when we're consuming music through something like Spotify is context. Yeah, that's for sure. You don't know the history and the evolution. Or it's harder to figure that out. Let's put it that way. I mean, I'm grateful for my linear past. <laughs> I mean, I, I took issue with this book of punk posters some young person put out because, to me, all, chronology is super important. Yeah. And they just mixed it all up. They didn't care what date this happened. And, you know, it was all, it wasn't linear. And I felt it ought to have been. And and then the text was all, I didn't agree with any of the text. Like, look, dude, you weren't there. You don't know what you're talking about. A lot of the value of punk is coming after these giant 70s arena rock bands, right? These these big sort of overblown. It was a reaction against yeah. the, the first generation of arena bands. That is totally correct. They were called Days on the Green was a big one here. Yeah, see, you can't understand anything without context. Yeah. Punk was a reaction against the rise of early arena rock, in which you felt like nothing among you know, several thousand people who were this peon. You know? And what I liked about punk is that everyone in the audience, it was so tiny when it started the first year or two that it seemed like almost everyone in the audience eventually was on stage later. <laughs> I like that. How did punk or the punk scene influence you to to pick up a pen and start writing for yourself? No, it was living through the hippie scene and not seeing one thing that I thought was really, truly great, nailed it, 
come out. I mean, actually, one of the closest things was by Tom Wolfe, electric Kool-Aid acid test. I mean, I guess he has a photographic memory. Yeah. And and he definitely captured some interesting people. It's interesting that you bring him up because he really is a case of, I don't think impartial is the right word, but, but maybe as close as you could get to an anthropologist of being somebody who's clearly from outside of the scene, who is able to immerse himself in it and, and write this sort of definitive document about it. Oh, I, I like him. I mean, I liked his book that came out quite a long time ago called Hooking Up. That showed me people are literally, the culture is making people crazy, if you ask me. This is not for the ages, the way these people are forming their lives. And I just think we need some some old-fashioned values that are maybe never were truly old-fashioned that we just thought they were. But but I'm in favor of people doing a hell of a lot of reading and spending time by themselves. I have all these theories. First hour of the day, don't talk to anyone. Don't answer the phone. Don't check your iPhone. Don't check your computer. Just take a blank notebook and stay in bed and write. Because your poor little subconscious has been working all night telling you, pay attention to me. You know, and if you don't give the subconscious a chance to dictate to you, you're wasting part of your precious brain power that's working in your behalf. Because we're all here to be as individual as we can in a way. And what's more individual than taking a notebook and writing down the dictations from your subconscious as soon as you wake up? How much time are you spending writing these days? Not that much. I mean, it's hard to write. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. It's right. And then my my newsletters kind of changed. This young friend of mine thought that I should just write a little essay every once a week, basically, of whatever I want to write about, kind of, and just encourage me to write more. And so I can do that. I mean, those newsletters are probably written in 20 minutes, which isn't that long, but, you know, they, it just comes out. And I don't do the traditional things of, which I ought to do is like write an outline so to make sure all my points get mentioned in the little essays I write, but I don't do that. They just sort of come out. You say it's the, the hardest thing to do. I mean, oh, on, a, yeah. on a very base level, at least in the United States, most people are, are literate to some degree. Most people have the, the tools to do it, the literacy to do it. So what, what's the blockage? What's the breakdown there? Oh, there's a lot of people who, who write blogs, millions of yeah. them now. And I don't read them. That's just too much. Yeah. But I'm in favor of a million zines being put out and a million blogs being written, and they're usually slightly stream of consciousness. I don't know. I, I always said I only want to be around the smartest people alive who or who've ever lived. But as I don't know who they are now, I, I mean, I love fiction because it, it grabs you so emotionally. It's not just intellectual. It, skilled fiction, gra- you know, that word emotional intelligence. Well, it, you become the person you're reading about who's narrating your fiction novel, even if it's a different gender and age. That's the power of fiction. And, you know, I have to say, I just, for the first time, I read a book that came out five years ago, and, and I said, how come I didn't have any friend tell me you must read this? Mm-hmm. You know, I somehow totally missed it. It was 
by a local author named Dave Egger that's called The Circle. It came out mm-hmm. 2013. It's 2018 now. Why am I just reading this now? I didn't read it in 2013. And that really bothers me. I said, Bill, you don't have enough friends. And, and you know, because someone should have said, listen, you better read this now. It just came out. Not five years later. I obviously primarily know you through the nonfiction stuff, through the research stuff. Have you written fiction for yourself? Or? Never. Never. No, I think it's really hard. I, I mean, Have you tried? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, so you've never tried? <laughs> I don't I never had an idea. I mean, you're supposed to get an idea, sure. and you're gripped by it. Yeah. And then you could say, oh, this is how you write a book. You know, I, I try to not be, A, narcissistic. Yeah. I, I'm kind of against narcissism, and I'm kind of against self-indulgence. I just sort of thought, well, everything I publish on some level ought to have as much value as possible. Try to give as much as you can with everything you publish. Well, that's a lofty goal. It doesn't mean you succeeded, but um, you can try. As somebody who's involved in really every single part of the, the, the bookmaking process, what's the most fulfilling aspect of it for you? Just getting the damn thing done and sent to the press. So finishing That's it. That's the only time you can take a breath yeah. again, take a deep breath. And you never read your books after they come out. Because the first thing you will do instantly, you will find a typo mm-hmm. and it'll ruin your day. Yeah. There's a sense that you get from it when you can actually hold it in your hand. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who's been writing online for just about all of his, his career. There's, there's a satisfaction that you don't necessarily get when a story posts online that you do get from actually holding the physical object in your hand. You're probably correct. Correct. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't think about that much for some <laughs> reason. Hmm, I guess. I hate to look at anything I've ever done, like I said, because I will find a, either a typo or a way it could have been done a little better. The sentence could have been crafted a little bit better. Oh, well. Is that perfectionism? I mean, that, that must be something that drives you to some degree to, to continue to make better things. Well, I always said, sadly, that my brain is like Swiss cheese. And no matter how many times I proofread something, I miss one error at least. I haven't found any yet in in my version of the Trust Exhibition by J.G. Ballard. I, because it was Ballard, I tried to do better for him than yeah. I would do for myself. I haven't found a typo yet. I just look at it randomly with a little slight sense of dread. Part of me is jealous for people who are are sort of self-satisfied. But I do know that if you feel like you've done the best thing that you can, if you feel like everything you make is great, what's compelling Mm. you to make something better in the future? Well, I don't think anything I've made is necessarily great. I just did the best I could, given the resources of the time. You know, a lot of friends have helped me proofread and uh, find mistakes. And I don't know, you just... There does come a time when you have to send it to the press. You you can't proofread it the 21st time or 23rd time. You're sick of it. (laughs) You've already committed yourself to a given topic for a certain period of time. I suppose once you're toward the end of the process, it really does feel like time to move on to the next thing. Proofreading, there's never an end, but you you do get sick of doing it. And then you have to send it to the press. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, it's not really funny, but it makes me laugh. And and a lot of times, I've, I mean, I have made some bad mistakes. Like, you know, get a book from the press and, what, there's a typo in the headline? Mm. Like, but you kind of did those at the last minute or the photo captions. So then I learned you could really double down on the photo captions and the headlines. 
after that happened with that one book, everything you do at the last minute is dangerous. And usually the photo captions are the last things you do. When you look at the bookshelf, I think um, yeah, a lot the of research are right books, you. Yeah. yeah. Is there anyone in particular that stands out as, as one you're more proud of than the others? No, they're all they're all one big family of they're all your children. Yeah, they are your. I mean, if you're gonna leave anything behind, it's gonna be those books, you know, yeah. and maybe some kid in small town discover them all and say, "Hey, I, this research is good. I got to get all of them," <laughs> and that sort of makes me feel well. I guess I deserve to take up the space on planet Earth for this number of decades. I guess I, I feel we should earn our our right to live, but a lot of people just take it for granted. I think everyone should work. You know, give something. <laughs> there you go. That was Vive. Recorded that one in his amazing apartment in North Beach, San Francisco. Really more of a library. Glad we were finally able to set that up. I've been uh, a big, big fan of research of stuff back in the day. I've been reading it since the 90s. You can check out their entire catalog over at Research Pubs. Com. Thanks to him. Thanks to you guys, as always. If you enjoy the program, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. Uh, we're on Spotify now, anywhere we have to get your podcasts. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. And that's about all we got for this week. So stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L.